Glad to be continuing here in the book of Malachi, working our way through the book more than uh, about halfway there now. So this is the, the one that gets us closer to the end than the beginning. We've seen the setting of Malachi, what's going on as the prophet comes to God's people. It's a time of spiritual decline in Israel, apathy, disinterest in God, half-heartedness in worship. And we've seen how Malachi brought this message from God in the form of a dispute that God makes a statement or asks a question and the people respond with, with some kind of question. It's usually phrased with, but you say, and then God responds with a challenge, with an indictment from his prophet. And so Malachi is, is, you know, is this dispute, and we're now in the fourth dispute as we uh, continue here today. Malachi has been called the prophet of God's covenant love. Because of the way that God has rooted his dispute with his people that we saw at the very beginning of the book, in his love for them. It's as if he's saying, right, God's saying, I wouldn't be arguing with you if I didn't care. God is loving his people, and so he's saying to them, why are you responding this way towards my love? Why are you being half-hearted? Why are you questioning my love? Why are you breaking faith? as we saw last week, breaking faith with me and breaking faith with one another, being treacherous and not keeping your promises. God's people have been doing these things, and so God is letting them know about it because he cares, because he loves them. And so all of these responses that, are, that we're seeing from the people are these kinds of expressions of selfishness, of irreverence, of idolatry that have become such a problem in these days, and that's why God St. Malachi. Those things, of course, are a problem in our day as well. So these words are for us this morning, too. Page 676 is where Malachi uh, chapter 2 is located. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's, Malachi, of course, is right before Matthew in our Bibles. And we'll be reading there at the end of, of chapter 2. I'll, the outline in the bulletin is a bit... Um, I'll jump around with it a bit more than usual. So but I hope it helps you to follow along as well. Uh, From Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly... The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against the sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help, of course, as we come to your word, and we thank you that in it are timeless truths, truths for us today to understand 
about who you are, about your justice, and about who we are, and about our need for you. God, we thank you that we have this opportunity, and we ask that you would speak to us in the next few minutes, and that you would make your word real in our hearts and change us as a result. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 8th in 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, Jonathan Edwards preached his most famous sermon, of course, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I remember reading it in Mrs. Coleman's 10th grade English class at Haven High School, and I remember being somewhat unimpressed by it, unmoved by it, sort of thought he was over, uh, overdoing it a bit. Um, I guess my problem, I guess that was my problem, right? It's being a high school sophomore. Um, no offense to any high school sophomores out there, but I'm sure your loving, great literature that you read in high school English, I wasn't so much interested at the time. But uh, the story, of course, of the sermon is, is a fascinating one and, and of its impact in American history. Edwards had been invited to preach at this church in Connecticut by the pastor because this con- the congregation had not been stirred by the great awakening that was happening around them and sweeping across New England in those years. God had sent a revival, 1740 to 1742. There was this huge revival among the churches in New England. Uh, God, really the, the greatest outpouring of the Spirit, I, I think, in, that we would say in the, in the history of our continent. And this infilled Connecticut church had not yet been moved and not seemed to have gotten it. The pastor didn't know what to do, so he called Edwards. And Edwards had already, I think, according to what I read, had preached the sermon at his own congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts, but seemingly without much of an effect. Not much is written about the way that the Northampton church responded to this sermon. But from diaries of people who were there, we have a record of what happened on that day on July 8th, 1741. And God moved. And Edwards was never much for an impressive pulpit manner. He, his eyesight was not really sharp, and so he was sort of read his manuscript with his face kind of close to it. He read with passion, but, but evenly, you know, not given to shouting, not given to theatrics. In the days, of course, before, you know, electronic sound amplification and stuff, it would have been difficult at times perhaps to have heard him as he stood and read his manuscript. But as he read, image upon image, scripture upon scripture, the congregation began, began to respond. And they responded with weeping. And they responded with wailing. They responded with shouting. Oh, what shall I do to be saved? Oh, no, I'm going to hell. People were fainting. At least at one point in the sermon, Edwards had to ask people to quiet down so that he could continue. The justice of God was held forth to those listeners. The kind of justice that does not grade on a curve, the kind of justice that does not give suspended sentences, airtight justice, all-knowing justice, person suspended by the mercy of God by a thing like a spider's web over a yawning, fiery chasm kind of justice. It's what Edwards held out to the people on that day. 
And his sermon had great effect and, and tremendous effect in the whole Great Awakening and beyond that congregation and seems to have made an eternal difference in the lives of many people. Yet, of course, perhaps like me in 10th grade English, perhaps like us today, perhaps according to our world, this picture, this sermon would not have the same kind of impact. It's, it's sort of a foreign idea. It seems like he's, you know, he's, he's misrepresenting or, or talking too much about justice and not about God's love. And of course, people tend to pit God's love against his justice and rather like his love better. And certainly we can take great comfort in the love of God. But here in this book, the prophet of covenant love describes the great and perfect justice of God. And we can't separate these two in his character. They're both perfectly represented in our God. As we turn to our text, we're here again in the fourth dispute. This is sort of a new section in the book. Our, our chapter break is kind of in the wrong place. We should start chapter 3 here in verse 17. It doesn't really help us, but we're entering some new territory. The, the dispute, in a sense, is heating up. The questions of the people are becoming more pointed, more cynical, perhaps more bitter. Verse 17, you have wearied, you've made him tired, the Lord, with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? God has become tired or wearied by the words of his people. They're putting his patience to the test because of these things that they are saying, which are reflected in the condition and attitude of their hearts. There's an interesting parallel or uh, connected idea in Isaiah 43 which God is speaking to his prophet in that time to tell his people they're wearying him because of their sins. God does not tire of the prayers of his people. God loves to listen to them. His ear is always open to their cries. But God is worn out, according to Isaiah and this passage, by the sin of his people. And so how were his people sinning against him in what they're saying? Well, these are obviously slanderous kinds of charges related to to one another. The first is the statement that God is pleased with evildoers. God obviously doesn't know the difference between good and evil, or at least he doesn't care to distinguish between the two, and he probably actually prefers evil. Did you hear that? They're saying he probably is pleased with evildoers. And we've seen the flip side of this already in Malachi, in a sense, because God has said to his people in Malachi, he's not pleased with their sacrifices in chapter 1. That he's not listening to their weeping and wailing before him in chapter 2, verse 13. So this is the logic according to them, right? God isn't listening to us, so he must prefer to listen to evildoers. You see what happened there? There is this implicit assumption that we're doing right, that God should be pleased with us. And since he isn't, that must mean that he prefers those who are evil instead of us holy and righteous people. Right? The second charge is related, stated a different way. It's a question. Where's the God of justice? God doesn't seem to care about good or evil. He doesn't seem to know the difference. God has no sense of justice and fairness. God can't tell right from wrong. The theme of the justice of God comes about all through the Bible in a host of of different ways. God's people cry out for justice when they're being oppressed and afflicted in many historical accounts. Job and Ecclesiastes speak of the fairness and the justice 
of God. Many psalms include this theme and a call for God to do justice because there's a universal human longing for justice and fairness and rightness to be reflected in our world. And so God's people ask. And they ask in different ways. And God doesn't always respond the same way to this question, right? And we'll come back to this in a little bit. But how does God respond in this case? We see two different responses as God addresses the charges, these statements that his people have made about him. The first, God says that he will act to show his people that he really does care about good and evil. So read in with me in verse 1 of chapter 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Here God promises to act in the history of his people, in the history of the world, to send a messenger. God's messenger will prepare the way. This is a picture of the practice of a visiting king sending a messenger ahead so that a village or town or city can be prepared for his arrival and make ready for him. This kind of messenger who's coming is a human figure who will announce the coming of one who's greater. He's the messenger of the covenant. Not bringing a whole bunch of new messages, bringing the message of God's covenant of the great promises of God being announced again and again. The New Testament gospel writers, of course, pick up this picture in no less than four places, and they say that this one is uh, explicitly connected with John the Baptist. And even before his birth, John's father prophesied through the Holy Spirit that his son would be this messenger, preparing the way announcing the coming of another, making a straight path for God to send the long-awaited Messiah to his people. So clearly we should understand that John the Baptist is this covenant messenger figure who Malachi is describing. But beyond this, I think it's interesting as we read this verse, this messenger is preparing the way before me, says the Lord. And suddenly the Lord, now this is not the Lord Yahweh, this is the Lord as in Adonai, Lord or Master, it could be a human or a divine figure. The Lord who you are, whom you are seeking will come to his temple. It seems to me that we can see hints of the arrival of two figures, can't we, in this verse? As indeed Jesus followed the ministry of John the Baptist, the messenger. The Lord is coming to his temple. He's going to show up in the place where he promised that he would meet with his people. But in a way that's sudden, in a way that's surprising and unexpected, there's some shock value in the arrival of the Lord in his temple. This changes the equation, right? God is going to show up on the scene. What about their charge? What about the question? Does God prefer evildoers? Is he confused by good and evil? Verse 2 Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. Is God confused by good and evil? No, he's going to sort it out. 
He's going to sort out good and evil. He's going to remove the evil, and he's going to keep the good, as described by these two metaphors here, refining and washing. God's going to refine. He's going to purify his people. Of course, this is the process of getting all of the impurities out of metal, precious metals, by heating them up so all the bad stuff can burn off. The second image, of course, is washing with soap, with detergent, with an alkali kind of stuff that they used in the day to get things white again, to get the stains and the dirt out of, of their clothes. One commentator was writing in 1913. I love the way that, that this person wrote about this. He said this, the, picture, the beauty of this picture is that the refiner looks into the open furnace or pot and he knows the process of purifying is complete when all the dross is all burned away when he can see his image plainly reflected in the molten metal. As metal is, is heated up and purified, it becomes like something like a mirror. And as you look into it, you can see your image reflected. And so the idea of God seeing this refining being complete when his image is reflected in his people. And the result, Malachi tells us, will be pure worship. Not like the worship that they've been doing, but pure worship, righteous offerings that are accepted to the Lord. God's people will worship him rightly. The priests and the Levites mentioned here will not lead the people into idolatry and depravity and make them stumble, as in chapter 2, verse 8. No, they will be pleasing to the Lord as they used to be. There's this interesting sense of looking backward here to a time when the Lord's people were more serious, they were more diligent, they were more reflective in their worship of him. So as a prophet, Malachi is looking forward to this event. God is going to do something radical regarding the moral character of his people. He's going to act decisively. Well, when will this happen? We should see that this happens as part of an unfolding drama in redemptive history. In other words, as we often see in the Old Testament prophets, there, it's not one complete event that there was a near fulfillment in the first advent of Christ, and there will be a complete fulfillment in his second coming. So from Malachi's perspective, right, there's, there's a near fulfillment of this prophecy in the coming of the messenger and in the Lord's appearance in his temple. So in something like 450 years from when this was written, indeed, John the Baptist and Jesus showed up on the scene, refining and cleansing real people. And many people in Israel, sinners, ordinary people, Gentiles, Jews, rich, poor, lame, and blind, believed in Christ. And they were refined. They were purified. They were cleansed of their sins. They were forgiven. They were saved. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And he found many. Many, of course, did not believe. And so his coming to them was a kind of judgment and a hardening of heart. And so the generation of Jesus experienced this refining, this separating of good and evil. But there's also a far fulfillment that's in view that we're waiting for. That God's people will one day be completely purified in heart and worship, that there will be no sin in the new Jerusalem. That's what God is doing here. He's going to act. He's going to act decisively in history. He has and he will again. That's the response of God to the first charge. What about the second charge? Um, so the second question, where is the God of justice? Verse 5. 
So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. They ask about justice. Where is the God of justice? And God responds with a kind of play on words. Justice is connected to judgment, which he says is coming. Do you want justice? I will bring judgment. Like in a courtroom, God will be on the witness stand. As we saw last week with the issue of divorce, a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Here, God will be testifying against those who rebel against him. It seems this list of sins here is sort of an interesting one, sort of, seems sort of random to us. Sorcery, you know, perhaps, perhaps connected to their problem of idolatry. Adulterers and perjurers, those who are breaking faith, as we saw last week. Those who are breaking their promises and breaking trust with other people. Then there's this category of people who defraud and oppress the vulnerable. The working poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. Those people, too, God's eye sees. And God will bring justice. And all of these sins and many more are summarized. The way we should read it is the last sentence sort of summarizes them all up. They don't fear, they don't fear me, says God. God says, I'm going to testify about your deeds, your sins, and I will make a judgment. I will decide about your guilt and innocence. I will pronounce a verdict and render a decision regarding your purity and your righteousness. In other words, God is saying justice is coming. You ask, where is the God of justice? I tell you, it's coming. What should we understand from this text today as we think about what it means for us? Perhaps you noticed I left out a a few things as we went through the passage. Skipped a bit on the outline from verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Who can take all of this in? Who can remain upright when he shows up? It's an image taken from battle, right? Who can remain on your feet when the enemy rushes towards you? Who can stand and not be overwhelmed? That's people have asked the question, where is the God of justice? When will he appear? When will he make things right? And they've been asking clearly in a sinful way, not in a way that comes from faith, but in a way that that is cynical and disbelieving. We see in the Bible, of course, as I mentioned, that people often ask for God to show up and to do justice. There is a universal longing for things to be made right. And so there are a couple ways to ask that question, right? One is to ask from the perspective of sort of a personal gain, of personal blessing with the assumption that God is on my side. When is God going to show up and when is he going to smite all of those other people? Right? I don't know if you remember, as I was writing this, I remembered that Far Side cartoon from, I don't know if any of you read the Far Side in the 80s. There's this ridiculous one. It's a, it's a picture, you know, how there's just one scene. God at his computer. And there's God sitting there in front of this, you know, 1980s-looking PC. And uh, there's a guy on the computer screen, and there's uh, the smite button on God's keyboard. So God's about to hit the smite button on that poor guy that's on God's computer, right? It's ridiculous. But, when is, but that's what we think, right? When is, when is God going to show up and smite those other people? 
He's on my side. The prophet Amos described this same scenario in Amos chapter 5. In the context of that book, the people have been asking for God to show up and bless them, while at the same time they've been oppressing others and breaking faith and committing all kinds of idolatry. And this is what Amos writes. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to be met by a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Will not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. This description from a prophet, I think, fits with Malachi. For a people whose hearts are far from God, and they're asking him to show up and make their dreams come true, of course God is on our side. We can't wait until he gets here. If any of you watch college football, of course, you know Lee Corso. If Lee Corso was the prophet, he'd say, well, what would he say? Not so fast, my friend. Wait a minute. Do you think that God is here just to make your dreams come true and live according to your agenda? There's a very different way. That's one way to ask for God's justice. There's a very different way for God's people to ask for God to show up and bring justice. Psalm 73 is a great example of the man who saw the prosperity of the wicked and he asked, where is God? And then he remembered And he says, then I remembered the end, what will be, how precariously they're perched, ready to fall. The saints, martyred for their faith, stand and call out to God in Revelation 6. Which is what they say, how long, O Lord, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. The number of those saints is growing each day in our world. Each of them, according to Revelation, was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little while longer until their number is completed. Who are we today? How are we looking for God's justice to arrive? I remember growing up and seeing all of those, I guess this was the thing in the 80s, all of those Christian movies made about the end times made it seem like it was all sort of terrifying and horrible. The kinds of movies they made, I guess, you know, I guess Christians were making these with good intentions, but mostly sort of to scare church kids into taking their faith a little more seriously. Perhaps it was just a less well-crafted modern version of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? I don't think so. I mean, it made me, even as a child of faith, scared about the return of Jesus, But the Bible gives us a very different picture for all who believe in Christ. It's a more powerful one. It's one of great anticipation. Come, Lord Jesus. We are ready to see with our eyes what we believe in our hearts. Right? We're waiting for you to fix all that's wrong with this place and with us. It's a picture of vindication, a picture of unparalleled rejoicing. We'll see this later in the book of Malachi, a similar vision of a great future waiting for the people of God when he comes and when he acts and when we see him face to face. But only believers in Christ can have this kind of confidence, right? 
Those far from God will mourn at the appearance of Christ. They will say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. The choice is for each of us then, right? Each, every, every adult, every teenager, every child. As Jesus declares to all who would listen in John 6, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. In that verse and in a thousand others, life is offered to you in the gospel for free. The grace of God. The God who put his justice upon himself, upon his son, so that the results of his justice would not fall on us. The God who could reconcile his love and his mercy with his justice in an amazing and astonishing way that people could be saved. So the call goes out for us. Repent and believe. Ask God to have mercy on you and to forgive you. Agree with him that you're not okay, right? And that you desperately need a savior. The solution that he offers. He's made a way in sending his son, Jesus Christ. The greatest expression of God's justice and mercy is this, right? It meets here at the cross. It meets when the son took the penalty that he did not deserve. So that all those who deserved that punishment could be saved as they believe as they trust in him for free. It's, it's the gospel. It's offered to us. For all who believe then, for us, we wait with hope and faith for Jesus to return. We wait expectantly. That's the, that's the message that you see over and over in the New Testament. Is this idea of how long, how long, O oh Lord, come back. We need you. We want to see you. We want to know that what we believe is is really true. We want to see it with our eyes. We look for you to establish perfect justice and mercy. Until then, of course, we're people who wait. We're people who hope. We're people who believe. We're people who seek to bring justice in this broken world. To foreshadow the completeness of the kingdom that is coming. This morning, I encourage you to encourage one another with these words. We see that often in the New Testament also, don't we? The Lord is coming. Encourage one another with these words. This is, the world is not always going to be like this. There is another day that's coming. And of course, this passage and. All of Scripture tells us to share this message of hope with those around us. And indeed, there is a, a, a lost world. There are people who are enemies of God. And there is a message of hope and forgiveness for them as well. And God has called his church to be a part of declaring that message to those who are near to us and those who are far away from us. These things are true for God's people. 
These things are true for us. It's good news for us this morning. And indeed, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, indeed, we are thankful this morning for these words. We're thankful that you have sown in our hearts the seeds of faith that can see truly through your spirit that this world is not all that there is, that you are there, that you are bringing justice even when we don't see it, Lord, and that you are coming back, and we long for that day. Help us as we wait to look, as, look forward as people who, who look expectantly and, and do in our lives, Lord, help us to reach out to others with this message that, that you love and that you forgive, and indeed the judgment is coming. Lord, we thank you for this time. Use these words in our lives, even this week, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.